Grace and peace to you all. Please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke will be in chapter 10 this morning, church, and we'll be looking at verses 25 to 37, or more famously known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, and the title of my sermon this evening, or morning, church, is The Mark of a Christian. Sorry, I'm used to preaching Sunday evenings, not the mornings. The Mark of a Christian, that is the title of the sermon. And once you find your places in your Bibles, loved ones, please turn with, um, stand with me for the public reading of Scripture. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible this morning. Luke 10, 25-37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is the word of the Lord, church, starting here in chapter 10 of verse 25 of the Gospel of Luke. It says, Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. But, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, then put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. This is the word of God, church. Let's go before him one more time in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this day that you have given us. God, what a gift just to sing songs of praises to you, King Jesus, for what you have done for us on the cross, that you have so loved us, Lord, that you gave yourself for us on the cross. Not that we were worthy of it, but that, Lord, out of your own good pleasure, you chose to do so. And, God, we can only give you the praise and thanks for it in light of it, God. We thank you, Lord, for, for everything that you're doing here at Sovereign Way, Lord, um, regarding the mercy ministry, um, just various efforts to evangelize, um, efforts to depend upon you through prayer. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that, Lord, we will be busy doing these things because it is these things, Lord, that, God, you don't only get all the glory, but it is these things, Lord, that the world will know us for our love for you because we are your disciples. And so, Lord, help us as a church, Lord, to heed what does this parable have to tell us, Lord. The parables of Jesus are shocking stories, surprising stories, and usually, Lord, they they reveal to us what's really in our hearts. But I pray that, Lord, whatever my brothers and sisters do see in their hearts in light of this parable, that God, that conviction will not lead them to um, ultimate, you know, sadness or despair, but Lord will just um, um, renew them, Lord. Renew them a stronger, more vigorous spirit, Lord, to love you, God, with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, and with all of our strength, and that such love, the love that we experience only through the gospel of Christ, will cause us to love our neighbor as yourself, not only inside the church, but also those in our community here in the high desert. So Lord, we, we, I just pray this for my church family, for anyone here who doesn't know you. I just pray that, Lord, they will just encounter your love, God, that God will just melt them, Lord, convict them in their sin, and yet cause them to repent of it and believe in you, King Jesus. We pray that for anyone here who doesn't believe in you. And ultimately, Lord, Father, for myself, I am a weak vessel. God, I need you, Lord. Help me not to mess your word in any way. Help to guide my words, my thoughts, that, Lord, it will just be your word going to your people. I am just your vessel. Um, filled with your grace just to do what you've called me to do, to, to feed your sheep, to feed your lamb this mor- your lambs this morning, so that God is your word going to your people. And that we will just all, give you all the praise and glory because of it, Lord Jesus. We thank you and we lift up these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated, church. Many people profess to be Christ's followers, but sinfully do whatever seems right in their own hearts. There are many Christians who do follow Christ, but doubt their salvation due to the remnant sins still in your hearts. And yet this morning's passage begins with a question. 
an essential question everyone, whether you are a Christian or not, must consider. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? If you profess to be a Christian, but live wherever you want, you actually demonstrate that you're not really saved. But yet, if you do follow Christ, but struggle whether or not you are saved, then where can you find confidence that you are indeed saved? I raise these questions because the Christian life, the Christian life that many of us walk this morning, church, it is to be known by a particular mark. So much so that if this one mark is missing in your life, then you do have every concern to doubt your salvation right now as a Christian. And so with that in mind, what is this mark? Well, the answer is found in the main point of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. That is, if you are saved, you will love your neighbor. That's the main point. If you are saved, you will love your neighbor. And it's not that you're saved by loving your neighbor. You're saved by faith in Christ alone, because Christ loved you by dying for you on the cross. And yet, Jesus' point is that if you are saved, you will love your neighbor. But why? Why is that the case? And we're going to see in this parable that Jesus gives two reasons to prove his point. The first reason is that God's word teaches it. Simple as that. God's word teaches it, as you will see in verses 25 to 28. And the second reason is that good works toward your neighbor demonstrate it. Good works toward your neighbor demonstrate it, as we'll see later in verses 29 to 37. So let's begin by turning to the first reason this morning. That God's word teaches that if you are saved, you will love your neighbor. God's word teaches that if you are saved, you will love your neighbor. And so look at your Bibles, loved ones, in Luke 10, 25, um, the beginning of our passage. This is what it says. It begins by writing that an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so the passage begins with an expert in the law asking Jesus a question. And some of your English translations might actually refer to this person as a lawyer, which that's what I'll be doing this morning. And yet, when the, when the scripture says lawyer, don't think of our modern concept of, say, attorneys at law firms handling civil cases. That's not the kind of lawyers that we're, that we're going to read about here. Instead, this type of lawyer, it refers to a Jew. That is, a Jewish scribe trained in handling the law of Moses. That is, the first five books of the Bible. And their full-time job is to study and interpret it so that they can guide the Jewish people to live in light of it. As a result, they are the experts in God's law. And yet, if you read throughout the Gospels, it is these lawyers, these scribes, that they often ask Jesus a bunch of questions. And the reason why they ask Jesus a bunch of questions is that they always are trying to find a reason to trap Jesus. Why? Well, they, want, they are trying to find a legitimate reason to kill Jesus. Because when you read through the Gospels, Jesus consistently claims that he is the Son of God. That he is God in the flesh. That he is the God-man who came as Israel's Messiah to redeem both Jews and the nations back to himself in worship. And this is what exactly what the lawyer is going to try to do here in Luke chapter 10. And again, the purpose of asking Jesus a question is to test him, as it says in verse 25. And based on how Jesus responds here, the lawyer is going to hope to find a reason to trap him. In other words, to try to find a reason to kill him. As a result, this is the question that the Lord asks to test Jesus. He asks, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And notice how the lawyer asks that question. He is concerned about eternal life, which every single human being should. He is concerned about how is a person really saved? And yet, notice how the lawyer is asking the question. The lawyer asks what he must do to be saved. In other words, what good works must he do himself to receive the inheritance of eternal life from the creator God? That's the question that the lawyer raises this morning. And in response, look at Jesus' answer in the next verse in Luke 10, 26. He says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And so Jesus responds to the Lord's question with a question. And not only is that very typical for Jesus throughout the Gospels, but it's also an effective way to respond to the challenging questions of others. He's really reversing the burden of proof here upon the one asking the question. 
It's as if Jesus said, well, you're an expert in the law of Moses, right? So based on your studies, what does it say? What is your answer? And this is actually a good example of what the apologist Greg Kukul calls the Columbo tactic. The Columbo tactic. Maybe some of you have heard of this. Inspired by the 1970s detective TV show, the Columbo tactic simply uses questions to either begin or advance spiritual conversations in a disarming way. Sometimes you want to ask questions that help you gather information to gain clarity in a spiritual conversation. Like, what do you mean by that? I need some more information on that. Sometimes you might want to ask questions of reversing the burden of proof. That is, encouraging the other person to give reasons for their views. Yeah, they're asking you the question, but hey, you give me your reasons for the question that you're asking. That burden doesn't lie on me. It lies on the one asking the question. And a good question to ask in line of that then is, well, how do you know that? How do you know that? And yet sometimes you want to ask questions to make a point always towards a specific direction, like the gospel. How did you come to that conclusion? And so I bring that all up because what we see here is that Jesus, he's really reversing the burden of proof upon the lawyer here in Luke chapter 10. Since the lawyer asks, what must I do, Jesus, to inherit eternal life? Jesus cleverly asks him to give his reason, his answer to his own question. Well, lawyer, what is written in the law? What is, how do you read it? How do you answer it? And I bring this up because if any of you loved ones desire to grow in having spiritual conversations, pointing to the gospel wherever you go, learn to ask thought-provoking questions like Jesus here. Because you may not always have the answer, loved ones. I know I don't. There's just too much things to know in the world. But you can always be ready to ask questions. You can always be ready to ask questions challenging an unbeliever's worldview. You can always be ready to ask questions that leave a rock in their shoe to think about later, leading to, Lord willing, gospel conversations and even gospel conversions. So that's what's going on here. This is how our text begins this morning. As a result, look at, how the, look at the lawyer's answer to Jesus' question in Luke chapter 10, verse 27. The lawyer asks a question. Jesus reverses the burden of proof. Here is the lawyer giving his answer here. He says this, that, well, love the Lord your God. With all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so the lawyer's response, he's really quoting from two Old Testament texts. And really, these are two famous Old Testament texts, because when you put them together, they actually summarize the heart of God's law. Love of God and love of neighbor. You shall love the Lord your God, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so let's look at these two verses individually really quick. The first text is quoted from a passage in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, where the command is to love God, it's to be done with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and mind. And so to love God then with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind is really just a way to saying, love him with your entire being, with everything that you have, with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, your thinking, your strength, everything that you have in your existence you are to love God with all your faculties. And yet, the reason you should love God in this way is based on what is said in a previous verse. That is Deuteronomy 6.4. This is what the ESV says about Deuteronomy 6.4. It records, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Again, another popular Old Testament text. And this is really the great confession of monotheism for both the nation of Israel and historic Christianity. The passage that many refer to as the Shema. And the word Shema in the Hebrew is the word to hear, to listen. And it, does, and it, just, it doesn't just express this idea of hearing or listening, but really it captures the idea that you listen to obey. That's what this word is getting at here. And so where, the ancient, so where ancient Israel was to listen to God's word and obey them, so are Christians today. The church of today is to listen to God's word and obey it. But Why? Well, as Deuteronomy 6.4 says, that the Lord Yahweh is our God. And what that means is that he is the creator of the cosmos. He is the greatest being imaginable whom all of creation is contingent upon him for his existence. If he didn't exist, nothing would exist. Yet because he is the creator and we are here, that's why we ought to love him with all that we are. Because he alone possesses life in himself because his existence is his essence, and his essence is existence. And as a result, then, God is one. 
And yet, when you look at that word in Deuteronomy 6.4, that God is one, in the Hebrew, it indicates a unity of plurality in his nature. In other words, it reveals that God is Trinitarian. That God is three and one, and that he has revealed himself as three distinct persons, as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the one divine essence of the triune Godhead. And so it only makes sense in that, in light of this is the God who is the creator, it only makes sense in that because we are made in his image, he created us, that we are called then to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because whether you believe, him, believe in him or not today, you were all created to love God. Since he first loved you by sending his eternal begotten son, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sins, you were only able to love him as a response. You are made in his image, Therefore, you're called to love him as an expression of worship to him. So that's kind of what this idea of Deuteronomy 6.5 says, that you should love the Lord your God with all that you have, with all that you got, loved ones. This then leads to the second text that the lawyer quotes from, which is from Leviticus 19.18. And this is the passage that talks about loving your neighbor. Where the first passage talks about loving God, the second passage refers to loving your neighbor. In this book of Leviticus, it's... It's an, infamous, it's an infamous book, especially if you try to read your Bible in a year. You get through Genesis and Exodus, like, oh, cool, I'm reading the Bible in a year. Then you get to Leviticus, and this kind of goes downhill from there because it's a very difficult book to understand. And yet, if I can summarize that book for you in one word, it would be this word, holiness. Holiness. As God says in Leviticus 19.2, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And the reason why that's such a big deal is because humanity as it says in Deuteronomy 6, you are to love God with all that you are. You're not to love the things of this world. These things are created by God. You are to enjoy everything in this world as an expression of worship to God. And yet, there's, only, there's one problem, though. There is a barrier separating God from man. No matter how hard you try to love God, there's this one thing called sin that affects all of humanity. And what that word sin is, is that humanity, you and I, we have all committed cosmic treason against God as the standard of goodness by doing whatever seems right in our own hearts. And so humanity, they can't maintain fellowship with God while in sin. That's why if you read the Old Testament, Israel had to do all those sacrifices to even approach God and maintain fellowship with him. That's why Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Therefore, it's in this context of holiness where this command to love your neighbor as yourself arises. But before I continue further, what does that word neighbor really indicate? Well, this concept of neighbor or neighboring in Leviticus 19, it refers to a particular in-group, right? An in-group where an individual identifies with ethnically and culturally. In other words, for the ancient Israelite reading this, their neighbor would have been fellow Israelites. or the same ethnicity, or in the same culture. My neighbor as an ancient Israelite are the other Israelites that I live around with. And with that in mind, well, how about everyone else? How about the other nations? Well, they would regard them as strangers, residential aliens. And yet, although they made this distinction between their neighbors as Israelites and everyone else in the world, because that sounds very exclusive, yet this is what the same chapter says in Leviticus 19.34. God tells to Israel, you will regard the alien, that is, everyone from all the other nations in the world, who resides with you as the native born among you, that is, the Israelites. You are to love them as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so, so all of the ancient Israelites distinguished from their Israeli neighbors and their Gentile strangers, bottom line, they were to love both just as God first loved him as their people. And so really, this response from the lawyer then, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He summarizes it in God's word from, from these two commandments, love of God, love of neighbor. So how does Jesus respond then? Look at his response in light of the lawyer's response in Luke 10, 28. He says to the lawyer, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
And Sawyer, so good job for the lawyer. He, he got the question right. And not only does Jesus say that the lawyer answered it correctly, but, he, but as he gives his answer, he also alludes to another passage in Leviticus. It's a passage um, in Leviticus 18.5, which basically says that if the lawyer does these things, if the lawyer actually lives a life of loving God and loving neighbor, then he will live. And what Jesus is getting at by quoting this passage is that if a person loves both God and neighbor, then you will live, not just in this life physically, but the ancient Jews interpreted this passage, you will actually get eternal life based on doing these two things. And also, the Lord's answer, and this is interesting that the Lord answers in this way, it is actually the same answer that Jesus gives himself in the other Gospels, like Matthew and Mark, regarding the summary of the law. When the scribes ask Jesus, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And how does Jesus respond? Love of God. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, that you should love your neighbor on yourself. It is on these two commandments that depend all the law and the prophets. However, don't misunderstand Jesus here. He is not teaching salvation by works. God forbid, right? Remember, he is just responding to the lawyer's question of, what to do to be saved? And also notice that Jesus, he does not say explicitly whether or not it's possible for the lawyer to love God and his neighbor in this way. He just says that if he does love in this way, he will be saved. And if anything, the fact that Jesus gives his parable to Good Samaritan shortly after this demonstrates that a person can't love God and their neighbor ultimately. What do I mean by that? This is something I'm going to expound upon later, but I'll say this for now, that unless a person realizes that you can't love, you can never love. And let me say that again. Unless you realize that you can never love, you can never love, because something needs to happen first before you can do that. And what the Bible says, you need to be born again before you can even understand what this kind of love is and before you can even start showing this love to others, especially to God and your neighbor. But more on that later. In the meantime, Jesus confirms here that, the lawyer, that what the lawyer says is true. If you love God with your entire being and your neighbor as yourself, you will flourish in this life before God and man. But not only that, but you will gain eternal life in the, ne- in the next. And what this ultimately alludes to, loved ones, is that the one mark that should mark all Christians is that of love. We should love God, we should love our neighbor, and we should be marked by this idea of love for both God and neighbor. And yet, even when I say that word love, because this is going to be something that I mentioned a lot this morning, it's not a particular feeling or emotion. That's not the type of love I'm alluding to here. American culture reduces love to a mere emotion that you feel for, another, for one another. Like if you're like in high school, you know, a guy's like, man, guy, man, that girl's hot, or the, or the lady's like, hey, that guy's a hunk, I want to get to know him. That's not the type of love that I'm referring to here, nor is Jesus getting at here. It's not merely a physical attraction that one has for another. So much so that if someone does possess these feelings for another, regardless of who they are, our culture says, well, that person should be free to love them. Since love is love, right? They should do anything that, to do anything to limit that love would be wrong. And yet I have a problem with that. The Bible does not teach that. Because if you're going to talk about love at all, it must be grounded upon a source to have any meaning at all. If love is merely grounded upon the personal preferences of an individual, then there's really no basis to know what love is at all. It changes according to the eye of the beholder because our human emotions, they're always changing. And yet, because they change, they simply have no meaning. And yet, though, if love is grounded upon a transcendental standard beyond humanity, then it possesses meaning because that meaning does not change. And the Bible makes clear that that God, that, that, that God he is love. He is the standard of love. God is love in such a way that if you're to actually remove love from God, he ceases being God. God is love. That is just who he is. And even when I say that, it sounds very selfish and narcissistic. That's not the type of love that the Bible teaches us about God. And it's not even a love that God needs to show to creation. Like, oh, I'm so needy of my creation. I need my creation to love. Nonsense. That is not what the Bible means that God is love. Instead, it is a love that he has for himself in light of the triune Godhead. 
Since God is three distinct persons as the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they share this one divine nature. And because they share this one divine nature, that is how we can understand that God is love. Where the Father loves the Son eternally and forever and perfectly. The Son loves the Father in the same way. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, he is really this bond of love belonging to both the Father and the Son. And that is how we can understand that God is love. It's not selfish. It's not narcissistic. Yet, it's, although it's contained in himself, yet it is shared amongst the three persons of the Trinity. That's why you can't say with other Unitarian gods that these gods truly exist. You can't say that the God of Islam is a God of love. You can't even say that the God of rabbinic Judaism is a God of love because it is a one single hood God. But with the God of the Bible, because he is a trinity, he has love in himself because the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and again, the Spirit is his bond of love between the two. But why does any of that matter? Well, one, because it's theology and it's good to know um, how we should rightly think about God. But more practically, whether you are a believer or not, Every human being, at the end of the day, in the same way, shape, or form, desires love. Every human being, at the end of the day, desires love. Everyone wants to love, and everyone wants to be loved. That's just what it means to, to be human. And yet, love in a mere human sense is broken. It longs to love that perfect spouse or that perfect friendship or that perfect family, and yet humanity always falls short as sinners against God. And so such love will always fall short too. It never lasts. It never brings lasting hope, joy, pleasure. But yet, the fact that you do possess hope for love shows that you are not made to love anything in this world ultimately. You're not created to do so. Because instead, you were created to love God. And since God is love, his love brings joy. His love brings pleasure. His love brings hope. And since God is so joyful in himself, it pleased him, not that he had to, not that, we were, not that we were obligated to, not that we deserved it, but it pleased God to share such love with you as his creation. It was out of his joy, out of his glorious love for himself as a trinity that he created you alongside all of creation so that you could be partakers one day, not only of his glory by faith, but also of such love that can only be found in King Jesus, our Lord. That is why you are to love him with your entire being. For our triune God is love in himself. God ultimately shows you that because of his love towards you for the gospel, that is the reason why you ought to love your neighbor as yourself. It's only when you know that God is love that you will be able to love. And yet... In a lot of these glorious realities for the Christian, Jesus' conversation with the lawyer, it takes a turn. It's a necessary turn to continue in our story, but yet this leads to Jesus' second reason. The first reason that we were talking about is that God's word teaches that if you are saved, you will love your neighbor. Because God has first loved you, you are called to love your neighbor in the same way. And yet what is the second reason? The second reason is that good works toward your neighbor demonstrate that if you are saved, you will love your neighbor. If you truly understand the gospel, good works toward your neighbor demonstrate that if you are saved, you will love your neighbor. So turn to Luke 10, 29. This is where our, the, the, the narrative takes a turn. It says, but wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, Jesus who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor, Jesus? And so the lawyer asks another question in light of Jesus' response to his first one. If you remember, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Don't forget these details. The lawyer asks Jesus, who exactly is his neighbor? And the key to understanding the purpose of this question is that the lawyer, he wanted to justify himself. And that word for justify means to really declare someone righteous or to be declared right before someone else if you have uh say like a debt before someone else like say like i, I go to um a particular say if i go to a bank and I, i'm like negative like 50 in my bank account i can't really do business with them unless like hey like you're negative 50 in your bank account you need to get this covered john i am not going to be right with that individual until i pay my debt and then all right cool now there's peace now there's shalom between me and the person that was in debt 
That's what this word justify means. It's a legal term. It's a forensic term. It refers to that when you are in the wrong against someone else, that when you're declared right, it means that your depths are clean, your depths are free. This is another thing I'll be talking about a little bit later this morning. But nonetheless, the lawyer, although he wanted to justify himself and how he is using this word, he wanted to make himself right. Notice that difference. He wanted to make himself right. He wanted to know who exactly is his neighbor. Why? So he can know, who do I need to love, Jesus? This, tell me the certain people I need to love so that I can just do my thing, love them, and get on with it, right? In other words, he wants Jesus to limit who his neighbor is so he can just merely go and do that. And yet, when you think about the Lord's question a little longer, the lawyer's question, it really misses the point what it, what it really means to love your neighbor. And also, don't miss really the nature of how the lawyer is asking this question that he wanted to justify himself. Because he asks Jesus that, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the first, that's the first question that he asks. And so Jesus answers him, well, you got to love God, and you got to love your neighbor. And yet, it's immediately after that, right, that this lawyer starts self-justifying himself regarding, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Yes, I know I'm supposed to love God and I'm supposed to love my neighbor, right? That, that's why I'm a lawyer. I know these things. And yet you tell me who my neighbor is so that I can just go and do that. And remember, this guy, he's an expert in the law. He knows his stuff. And although he gave a theologically sound answer, an answer that even Jesus would give himself, he still self-justifies himself regarding who he should love um, regarding his neighbor. And the reason why I'm even highlighting this, this, this um, detail here is because, loved ones, do we ever find ourselves having the same attitude as the lawyer? And what I mean by that is that do we ever find ourselves self-justifying ourselves when it comes to God's word? Because although it's one thing, although, although it says one thing, do you try to excuse yourself to get off the hook by doing everything that it commands? And I know that most of you know the word of God. A lot of you have good theology, some better than I. And yet, it's one thing to obey God, or, or sorry, it's one thing to know what God commands, and it's another thing to actually obey him, to actually obey him because you love him. Because it doesn't matter how good your theology is. The lawyer did. He had good theology. And yet, he still self-justifies his actions based on, well, Jesus, who should I love my neighbor? And so really, if really, this is a warning for us today, church, that just because we may know our Bibles well, if, if our theology does not ultimately lead us to practically live out our theology to us loving our neighbor, taking seriously the physical needs of those around us, then our theology is no good, bottom line. If our theology does not lead us to glorify God in such a way that we live our lives for the sake of his name, then that is not a good theology. And that's kind of what the lawyer is doing here. He just wanted to know, Jesus, what's the bare minimum that I need to do? Just tell me and I'll go ahead and do that. Again, once we go into the parable, you're going to realize, like, wow, this question is not a good question. He is misunderstanding the whole point of what does it mean to love your neighbor. And so just something to keep in mind, loved ones, as we get into the parable. But it's in light of this question, though, that Jesus answers it. He does answer this question. And his answer is going to be one of the most famous stories, one of the most famous parables that not only that the church knows, but even our culture knows as well. And that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Many of you probably have heard about it in Sunday school classes, um, or maybe you've heard of it on the news. Like, oh, there's a Good Samaritan who helped this person in need today, right? And yet, what is a parable? What is a parable exactly? Here's my definition of a parable to kind of make it easy. A parable is a story. It's a surprising story using familiar earthly pictures to reveal unfamiliar kingdom truths. A parable is a surprising story using familiar earthly pictures to reveal unfamiliar kingdom truths. In other words, parables are Jesus' favorite method of storytelling. You see it throughout the Gospels. Jesus mastered this storytelling medium so, in such a way that even our post-Christian culture carries ideas of, oh, there's good Samaritans out there. Oh, man, my, my, my child, he's a prodigal child. I'm, I'm waiting for the day that he comes back and return, right? Even our culture has an idea of, of, of Jesus' parables. And yet, these are stories, nonetheless, that Jesus taught to reveal unfamiliar kingdom truths through familiar earthly pictures of everyday life. Therefore, what we're going to see today in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus, he's going to use a familiar imagery that people would understand in his day. 
He's going to bring up a Samaritan. A Samaritan showing compassion to reveal the unfamiliar kingdom expectation of what does it really look like to love your neighbor. And as a warning, one purpose of the parables is to reveal the heart condition of all who hear them. In other words, parables function like a mirror to reveal, really, your true spiritual condition. Not only whether or not you are a believer or an unbeliever, but even as Christians, where do we land in light of this parable? Are we loving God and our neighbor in this way? Or is this something that we need to really check and re-examine our hearts to really see are we valuing the things of God or valuing something different? So with all that in mind then, look at how Jesus begins his famous parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verse 30. He responds to the Lord's question saying, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. The parable begins with a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And where, excuse me, where Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel, that's where the temple is located, that was the center of worship for Israel in that day. Jericho was a city, it was about 17 miles away. Jericho was, is, is not only the oldest city in Israel, but really is one of the oldest, oldest cities on the earth. And furthermore, Jerusalem, where Jerusalem sits about 2,500,000 feet above sea level, Jericho is about 800 feet below sea level, and that's really about a 3,300-foot difference in elevation. And the reason why I'm bogging you down with that, with those geographical details, because this path that this Jewish man was taking from Jerusalem to Jericho, it, is infam- it was infamously in that day known as the Bloody Way. The Bloody Way. And the reason why it was called the Bloody Way is that this path was notorious, not only for its rough terrain from getting from Jerusalem to Jericho and vice versa, but also for the various bandits hiding along in caves, along the road, so that they can rob travelers who go by. And so as a result then, Jesus describes an event that could have happened in real life, but the, but the story nonetheless, the parable, it records that a Jewish man, although it says man in, in the text, it's, it's implied it's a Jewish man, he was walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and, he was, and as he was making his way, he got jumped. He got jumped by a group of robbers. And not only did they strip him of everything valuable that he, that he had on them, but they beat him up severely, and they fled. And as a result, they left him half dead. And as a result, it's this man. Because of it, he is in a highly vulnerable condition. He is in great physical need to not only receive medical attention and care, but he's also helpless. He can't help himself. He can't help himself as he lies at the brink of death at the edge of the Jericho Road. And yet, this is how the parable begins and the story continues. And so look at the next part of the parable in verses 31 to 32. Jesus continues saying, After these things, a priest happened to be going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And so when it seemed that all hope was lost for this Jewish man in need of help, he had this priest. He just happened to be going down that same road. And now just to kind of say something about what a priest is, priests, they were a descendant of a guy named Aaron, and he was the first high priest of Israel. And what a priest was charged to do was really take care of the spiritual well-being of every Jew as mediators between God and Israel. That's why they worked in the temples, to do all the sacrifices and stuff. And so what better person for the Jewish man to help him than a priest entrusted with caring for God's people? And yet, when the priest saw this man, he passed by on the other side. In other words, the priest literally saw the Jewish man on the side of the road, and in response, he doesn't go near him to help, Rather, he avoids them as much as possible by going on the other side to go his own way. Really troubling, right? And many commentators have guessed, like, man, why did the priest do this? What was his motivation? Some would say that, well, he wanted to be ritually, he didn't want to be ritually impure because if he touched a dead body, then he wouldn't be good for temple service. Well, some others would say that, no, he didn't want to, he knew what went down. He knew this guy got jumped, he got beat up. He didn't want to, you know, you know um, risk his life trying to help this guy. He didn't want to do that. And yet others suggest that he just did not want to be inconvenienced. At the end of the day, he's a priest, he has a busy schedule, 
Why waste my time with a guy on the side of a road if I have so much other things to do? Again, it could be one, it could be all three. The text just does not say why the priest did not stop and help his fellow Jew. But what we do know is that he does ignore him. He ignores him and continues in his own way, neglecting this tremendous physical need of his neighbor. Moreover, the story continues. And now we see another character arrive onto the scene, and we see a Levite passing in the same way as the priest a little bit before. And now a Levite, a Levite is a descendant of a guy named Levi. And although all priests are Levites, not all Levites are priests. Because where the priests were there to be mediators between God and Israel, the Levite's job was to help the priests to take care of the priesthood and really to take care of the temple. And so if the priests failed to help a fellow Jew in need, then perhaps this Levite would, right? The two greatest people to help a guy in need, right? At least that's what you would think. But yet when this Levite arrived at the place and saw the man lying on, on the side of the road, he passed by on the other side. And so two of Israel's religious leaders, who would have been aware of what does it look like to love God, who would have been aware of the necessity to love neighbor, especially your own fellow Jew, they ignore loving their fellow Jewish brother who was in need. And it's at this point of the story that those who are listening to Jesus' parable, the first century Jew would then expect, well, there needs to be a twist in the story. And the expected twist for the Jew would be that this third and final person it would be a Jewish layman. Since the religious leaders failed to help a person in need, it would then be, well, it makes sense. I guess it's going to be a regular Jew who's going to set the example, set those religious leaders straight, like, hey, you know, like, what are you guys doing? You guys are the leaders. You guys are setting a bad example. I guess it's going to be a regular Joe Schmo Jew to, to set the right example. And yet, that's not how the story goes. What Jesus says next is perhaps the most shocking part of the entire story, so much so that even our post-Christian culture still embraces a, murmur, a memory of it today, because that's how powerful it is. And so look at the next part of this parable in verse 33. Look at what Jesus says. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion Besides the fact that Jesus' audience would expect a regular Israelite, they would have been shocked. We're like, Jesus, what? A Samaritan? What? But yet, why is that so surprising? Why would that have been so shocking for a first century Jew to hear Jesus' parable? Well, there's something you need to understand. There's some, there's some blood behind the Jews and the Samaritans. They were sworn enemies in Jesus' day. So much so that the Jews actually considered the Samaritans to be half-breeds. They were dogs who were nothing but religious compromisers. And ethically, when it comes to who these Samaritans really are, they are Israelites. Well, they used to. They were Israelites from the northern kingdom, but who then intermarried with foreign nations after they fell to the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. So there's some history behind this. And as a result, they began to mix their worship of Yahweh with the other pagan religions culturally. And as a result, it just led to this beef that the Jews they didn't consider the Samaritans as true Jews. Rather, they were dogs. They were half-breeds. And as a result, they were hated enemies. And just to kind of really show really the beef between the Jews and the Samaritans, do you recall when Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman um, at that well in Samaria in John chapter 4? Do you remember when Jesus asks this woman of Samaria for a drink of water? How does she respond? She says in John 4, 9 that, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. And then it gives this detail, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It's a small detail that we see there. And yet, even later in the Gospel of John, in John 8, 48, when the religious leaders are just sick and tired of Jesus because, you know, they don't like his claims of being the Son of God, which he is, what do they call Jesus? Jesus, you are a Samaritan. And by them calling Jesus a Samaritan, not only were they basically saying that, Jesus, you're a false worshiper of God, but you are an enemy to be destroyed. Again, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They were both fierce enemies. However, it is the enemy of the Jews that shows mercy to a Jew in need. It is the enemy that shows compassion. It is the enemy that shows love toward a fellow neighbor, even when that neighbor is an enemy. When the priests and Levites saw the Jewish man and kept walking, it was the Samaritan that responded differently. 
And as the Samaritan was journeying on that same road, what does the text say? He came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. Out of these three people who all came up to the Jewish man and saw him, it's the most unlikely person in the story who had compassion. And this word for compassion, or in some translations, mercy, it is really just a type of love, but it's a love that costs something. It is not just a mere expression of pity that you have feelings towards one another. Rather, it's a type of love that leads to action. It's a love willing to pay the price, like mercy a court might extend to a criminal, or maybe an ancient king showing mercy to one of its subjects, or more close to home for us. It's the type of compassion that God shows to sinners like us in Christ. The priest or Levite, they have made, they have made chosen not to help this guy, maybe because of their religious purity or fear of their own safety, or they just don't want to be over-inconvenienced. And yet, as the late pastor Tim Keller comments on the Samaritan's compassion, he says that this Samaritan, he risked his safety, he destroyed his schedule, and became dirty and bloody through personal involvement with a needy person of another race and social class. This is what it means to truly love your neighbor, to show compassion on someone in need. And yet, how does the Samaritan show such compassion? Look at the end of the parable in verses 34 to 35. This is how the Samaritan shows compassion. Jesus says that the Samaritan went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave him to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I will reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. And so what you see here then is that the Samaritan, he just doesn't do the bare minimum. He does all that he can, that he knows that he can, to help this Jewish man in need. First, he goes to the Jewish man. Shoot, the priest and the Levite, they couldn't even do that. They couldn't even go to the guy in need. And yet the Samaritan does. And what he begins to do is just first, let me do some basic medical treatment on the man. I'm going to pour some olive oil and wine on his wounds. And, 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 and in the ancient world of this time, the wine, it would, have, it would have cleansed the wound, kind of as an antiseptic, whereas the olive oil, um, as the bacteria is being killed and stuff like that, the olive oil would have really soothed his pain. And yet the Samaritan just not, does not stop there. He does not just leave the man on the road because he just got jumped. He can't help himself. So what does he do? He gets the man and he puts him on his own animal. And most likely it would have been a donkey. And if it was... Donkeys in this area of the world, they're not large animals. And so he would put the guy on his donkey, but there will only be room for the Jewish man to be on his donkey. And so what that means is that the Samaritan, he walked. He walked while this man was on his donkey. And if you recall, how long was that road from Jerusalem to Jericho? 17 miles. That is a long hike. And especially with a drop of elevation of about 3,300 feet. So this Samaritan... He put himself in physical discomfort to help his needy neighbor. And yet, if that wasn't enough, he eventually makes it to Jericho and places the man in a local inn to take care of his wounds. And the very next day, he gives the innkeeper two denarii to take care of him too. And something about a denarius, a denarius in first century Israel, it's an ancient Roman coin, and it would have been about, you know, the, about the cost of a single day's wage. And if you were to compare it to our day today... Minimum wage in California, I know it's going up and it sucks, but, um, but it's about like $15.50 right now, right? The, the minimum wage that someone can get paid to work. And usually on average, people work about maybe about 8 to 12 hours. I'm going to go with 8 for my math really quick here. And so if someone makes minimum wage, $15.50, and works at least 8 hours a day, they're going to make about $125. And if you times that by another day, that's about $250 here. That's about how much, you know, the, the Samaritan gave to provide for this guy and the inn. And so imagine giving not only a stranger that you have never met, but someone that you know is your arch nemesis, someone who is an enemy. Hey, I'm going to take care of you, do all these things for you to help you, and here's $250 to help provide for your physical need. It's crazy. And yet, that's exactly what the Samaritan does here. And not only that, but what does the Samaritan even say at the end of the story? He says, when I come back... To make sure that he's recovered, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. As a result, it's the Samaritan who meets the needs of his Jewish neighbor. It is the Samaritan, an enemy of the Jews, who shows compassion. That is how the parable ends. 
And yet, I do not want you to miss how shocking this would have been for Jesus' original audience. And I kind of help recreate the shock value for you today, everyone. Here's an example of how maybe Jesus might have told the parable in our day. And it might get a little personal. So imagine you have a Christian. He was going down from Hesperia to Apple Valley through 7th Street. Yet, while he was in Victorville, he fell victim to the hands of some criminals. They jumped him and left him in an alley unconscious. Now you're laughing, but... Stuff like this probably just happened, you know? <laughs> but anyways, now a pastor of a local church just happened to walk by him on a nearby street. But when he saw him, he passed by the alley. In the same way, a deacon of that same church walked by. And when he saw him, he passed by the alley. But an atheist, when he saw him, he had compassion. He went into the alley he called 911 and waited with them until an ambulance arrived for him. He drove with them to Providence Medical Center in Apple Valley and paid the necessary expenses for his treatment. And before leaving, the atheist tells the charge nurse, I will be back soon to see how he's recovering. And if he needs help paying for any extra expenses, I will cover it when I come back. That is how the parable would have sounded to Jesus' original audience. And you would think that a story like that, the pastor, the deacon, or the priest, or the Levite, they should have been the first people to care for this person in need. And yet, it was an atheist. Or if I may use another example, it was the democratic liberal, the social justice warrior. It was the LGBTQ activist. It was the Samaritan who showed compassion and mercy to a neighbor in need. That is why this parable is so shocking. And yet, it's not just a beloved story about a good old Samaritan helping a needy stranger. That's what our culture remembers about this parable. And yet, that is not Jesus' full point. And he's going to clarify what he means by this in the final verses of tonight's or this morning's passage. And so look at verse 36. Jesus asks the lawyer, in light of this parable, in light of this parable, lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell victim into the hands of the robbers. And notice what Jesus does here. Do you remember what the lawyer asked earlier? He asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And yet Jesus flips the question on his head. To whom should you be a neighbor to? To whom was the person in this story a neighbor? And Jesus does this right by asking the lawyer, who was a neighbor in this parable? Was it the priest? Was it the Levite? Or was it the Samaritan? And in response, look at the first part of verse 37. The lawyer rightly answers, the one who showed him mercy. And even look at how he answers that. He couldn't even say the Samaritan. Again, goes back to the beef between the Jews and the Samaritans. And as a result, it's with this in mind, loved ones, that the whole point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is that at the end of the day, Everyone is your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. Whether it is your family, your church family, the neighbors you actually live with spatially, um, you know, your coworkers, those who you consider your enemies or you don't really care for, or the random person that you meet on the street daily, the homeless, anyone at the end of the day across the world, whether they're in great physical need or not, those are your neighbor. And where the lawyer is concerned about who his neighbor is, again, Jesus asks, who should you be a neighbor to, lawyer? You're so concerned about who your neighbor is, but who should you be a neighbor to? And the fact that the, that the Samaritan shows mercy to a Jew, an enemy, reveals that, lawyer, you are to be a neighbor to everyone, even to your enemy, even to those Samaritans. And this makes sense, right? Because the Bible teaches that everyone is made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27. And, and because of that reality, everyone is worthy of respect. Because if you disrespect a person, you're ultimately disrespecting the one in whose image they are made in. That's God's image. That is the one reason you're to love your neighbor, because at the end of the day, everyone is made in God's image. And yet, the American church, and this might rub you all the wrong way, but if we're honest, historically, the American church recently is, in a sense, in a credibility crisis, because the one thing that the church ought to be known for they are not known for love, at least loving their neighbor by and large, because it's not known for its love. And yet, I will say this, that the American church is known for good things. The American church is known for being a voice for aborted babies who do not have a voice. The American church is known for that. 
The American church is known for defending a biblical ethic on sexuality, gender, or marriage, because all that points to the gospel. And yet, is, this is a question I need to ask us. Is the American church, by and large, known for its love when it comes to the poor and the marginalized in society? How about issues regarding racism against any culture? Not just black and white, white and black, but any culture. Racism transcends human cultures, unfortunately, because sin transcends human cultures. These are claims that the secular culture has raised against the American church over the years. And it is these claims that even many so-called professing Christians have even deconstructed their faith in Christ. They have abandoned the faith. And, since the, and, and, since, and, and their rationale for doing that is that, well, since the church is supposedly full of hypocrites, what's the point of trying to fix it anyways, right? Like, what's the point? And even when I mention this, this dilemma, it does require that the American church to address these issues biblically. And I think the church is doing it slowly but surely. And yet, the solution to this reality, though, because it is happening all the time in our culture, the solution is not to ultimately deconstruct Christianity. The answer is really a deeper Christianity. And it begins when you realize that the Christ and the Gospels took seriously all the physical needs in the fallen world, took seriously all the physical needs of fallen sinners in this fallen world. Because when Christ came here 2,000 years ago, he took evil so, so seriously that he came down here 2,000 years ago himself. He took seriously the physical needs of those in his day. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He caused the lame to walk, brought people back from the dead. He even gave good news to the poor, gave hope to those who had new hope, gave comfort to those who needed comfort. He saw those when others would look away. And I know that the church is not perfect. We know that, loved ones. And we as Christians, we are not perfect either. And yet, the church's bridegroom, Jesus, he is perfect. And he is perfecting his church until he returns to restore everything in this broken universe. And I share that because, isn't that not the whole point of the gospel? Jesus came back to save and to seek lost sinners like you and me. He came not to break a bruised reef. He came not to put out a smoldering rick. He is gentle and lowly in heart. For he came to redeem a people from all the nations back to himself in worship. This is the gospel. That Christ not only took seriously your physical needs, but he ultimately took seriously your greatest needs spiritually in him. Because before Christ, you were all lying dead in the Jericho Road. We were all lying dead spiritually in our sins, and some of you are still doing so today. And yet, in light of that reality, Christ came by and he saw you. He did not pass by on the other side. He saw you, and although he had every right to move along because you were there because of your sin, he had compassion for you. So much so that this com compassion, it was love that sprouted out into action. And what did he do? He gave himself up for you. On the cross, out of his great love for you as a substitute. As Romans 5.8 beautifully recounts that God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Sinful humanity deserves nothing but God's eternal condemnation in hell, because the wages of sin are death. And yet, Christ dies in your place on the cross so that if you repent of your sins and believe in him by faith alone as Lord and Savior, the word says you will be saved. But it's only then at that point will your sin death be paid by the God-man and full on the cross. Only then will you be declared right before him, not because of what you have done, but because you have received his perfect righteousness by faith. As a gift, there is no other way to be saved. There is no one else you can find your assurance in for salvation. You can't save yourself. You can only find it in Jesus Christ. And, and since Christ historically rose three, day, three days later from the grave, this message is true as revealed to us in the word of God. That's the gospel. And if there's anyone here who is still lying dead on the Joker road, that you're still dead in your trespasses and sins, and you have not experienced the peace, the forgiveness, the love that is only possible in Christ Jesus, I exhort you, you must be born again. You must repent of your sins and place your faith in King Jesus. Because only until you do that, we live this life of brokenness because of your sin. But yet in Christ, not only can you be taking care of your greatest spiritual need in him, but you can live a life worth living and that is for his glory and enjoying him forever. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And what's interesting is that although Jesus, he never calls the Samaritan good in the parable, right? Undoubtedly, what the Samaritan did was good by showing compassion, yet really the true good Samaritan at the, end of, at, at the end of the day is Jesus because it is Jesus who loves you as his neighbor. 
even while we were his enemies. Why? Because he died on the cross for all who would believe in him. As a result, what does Jesus command the lawyer in light of all this? Go and do the same. That is, show compassion like the Samaritan. Love your neighbor, even your Samaritan enemies, as this Samaritan loved in this parable. That is, that is what it means to love your neighbor. And when you love your neighbor, it shows that you love God. It shows that you understand that you can't love God unless you first experience his great love for you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, in light of that, then, loved ones, how shall we live in light of this parable? How shall you live in light of this text? Well, as Christ commanded the lawyer to go and love his neighbor like the Samaritan, you go and do the same. That's Christ's words to you, loved ones. Whether it is a brother and sister in the church who is in financial need, maybe it's a homeless person who asks for something to eat. Don't ignore them. Take them seriously. A single mother, maybe, and her child who is in desperate need of shelter, or maybe even your enemy who may persecute you, you are called by God to love them all. You are called by God, whether it is an inconvenience for you, whether you have to destroy your schedule, whether or not you have to get your hands dirty, you are called by God to love them all. For unless you love your neighbor, including your enemy, how do you demonstrate that you understand the gospel, that God first loved you while you were his enemy? Because to withhold such love from those in need, especially your enemy or neighbor, in your heart, that you... It just shows that you, that you deeply have not pondered the love of God that he shows you in the cross. It shows that there is a lack of spiritual fruit in your life, indicating that you might not be saved. And if there is a lack of fruit, especially a lack of love toward your neighbor, I exhort you, examine your hearts. Examine your hearts to see if you're saved. Because if you do not possess such love for others, then you do not fully understand the love of God that he first shown you on the cross. As the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, 16-17, he says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer, or anyone for that matter, in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and speech, but in action and in truth. And building upon this later on, John says in 1 John 4, 20, that if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. Basically, John's saying that you're not a Christian at that point because the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Loved ones, we must be a loving church to a dying culture. We must be a church known for our love because God has first loved us. It's not about moralism. It's because we have experienced the love of the gospel. Therefore, we're to go and do likewise. Not only is such love vital for our unity as the body of Christ, but such love is the greatest apologetic that we can offer to the world that Jesus is God's son. As Jesus says himself in John 13, 34 to 35, he says this, I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. But this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And what's interesting about this passage is that the late American philosopher Francis Schaeffer, he really observes that we got to read this verse in light of what he says at the end of, of John chapter 17. It's one section in this part of the Gospel of John. What does Jesus say in John 17, 21 in his high priestly prayer? He prays to God, may they all be one, that is the church, as you, Father, are in me and I am in, and I am in you. May they be also in us so that the world may believe you sent me. In other words, if we love one another, not only will we be one as the Father and Son are one, but we will show the world that we are truly Christ's disciples, that the Father has sent the Son. And yet, when we lack love for each other, our neighbor, our enemy, not being the hands and feet of Jesus, not taking seriously the physical needs of others, leading, to, leading us to share about their greatest needs spiritually in Jesus, the world at that point has every reason to know us not as Christ's disciples. And when that happens, they have every reason to doubt that the Father has really sent the Son. And I would even argue that if we don't love in this way, we are actually living as if God has never sent the Son. That is why it is so important that we are marked by such love. That is why it's important that we remember the love that we have all experienced in the gospel of Jesus and live in such a way. And so loved ones, much can be said about how we must reach our community with the gospel. There's so much physical needs, even in our own city. And yet, there's many opportunities to do so, right? Everything that 
our sister Brenna mentioned earlier this morning, I encourage you to go talk with her afterwards. We have, we have various evangelism teams that go out and try to reach people with their greatest needs spiritually. And yet, if those things like, oh, John, I'm not sure if I can or not, whatnot, I encourage you all to do this one thing. Pray. Pray for workers of the harvest. Pray for opportunities of how you can love your neighbor today, how you can help share the gospel, but how we as a church, a sovereign way, could really take seriously the physical needs of those in our community, ultimately getting to their greatest needs spiritually to know King Jesus. And so, loved ones, my exhortation to you is that if you lack love, you fail to understand the love that God first shows to you by giving us son Jesus who died on the cross for you. It's a hard reality, and it hit me like a ton of bricks this week, but it's true. Only when you understand God's love will you be marked by the one thing that lets the world know that you are a Christian, that you have love. And so like the Good Samaritan, like Jesus, live this day and onward by loving your neighbor as yourself because God has first loved you. So, so as I close... This one small paragraph. We're almost there. If you're saved, you will love your neighbor. Not only does God's word teach it through the two greatest commandments, love of God, love of neighbor, but your good works toward your neighbor actually demonstrate it, actually show it to the world. And yet, if you lack the love that is only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will never be able to love others in the same way. And it's because of this, I want to close with one of my favorite stories from church history. It's a story that's said about the apostle John in his old age, old man John, he, it's, it, it, it is said that he would often be carried to the church while he was still in the ancient city of Ephesus. He would be carried in the church on Sundays by some younger brothers. And when he was asked to give a teaching, you know what John would say all the time? Little children, little children, love one another. Love one another. Love one another. To the point where the other believers got annoyed. Like, teacher, don't you have anything else to teach us? We get that we're supposed to love one another. Why do you keep repeating the same command? And John would respond, because... It's the Lord's commandment, and if, and if it alone is done, it alone is sufficient. So loved ones, love one another. Your neighbor needs your good works, because that is evidence that you have experienced the love of God through the gospel. And it assures you that you are Christ's disciples, not because you love your neighbors yourself, but because God first loved you as, as his neighbor through the gospel. So with that in mind, let's pray as we get ready for the Lord's Supper. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. God, help us to never get bored of the cross because it's the cross that reminds us that, God, you show your love to us, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we approach the Lord's Supper, that, God, we will remember such love that you showed to us to the cross and that, God, we will just, you know, partake of this Lord's Supper with joy, with zeal, Yes, with broken spirits, but Lord, with, with revitalized spirits to now we know how much you love us, at least we're reminded of it, Lord, that God, we will love you ultimately and God, love others in the same way also, Lord. Help, help us, God, to be a light to this community, to be a light in the spirit of California. Help us to have the, that same love as the Samaritan, the same love as Jesus, because God, not only will the world know us for our love for one another and our neighbors, but God, they will know that the Father has sent the Son. This love is the mark that should mark us all as Christians, and it's this mark that is our greatest apologetic to this broken society. So, Lord, help us to be a loving church to a dying culture so that, God, you will get all the glory and that we're just your people making disciples and being on mission of the Great Commission until you return, King Jesus, to make all things new. Lord, God, we thank you. We just lift up all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.